Welcome to the 26th episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we talk about murders that intrigue us. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. Thank you for listening to last week's episode where an anti-government sympathizer's murderous crime spree ended in a blaze. Fair warning, our show can be extremely horrifying and graphic and we will use offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, be forewarned, we are passionate and always have been about true crime, but sometimes we will make jokes and laugh during our podcast. For more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and please give us a five-star rating. While you are there, leave us a comment telling us which murder intrigues you. And if you like our show, please consider consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me pod. We appreciate our Patreon supporters more than we can express with words. Thank you so very much. Hi, Cindy. Happy birthday. Thank you. Should, do you want to tell us how old you are or no? Uh, I am 44. Okay. Well, <laughs> you're not too old. You're not no. You're not a spring chicken, but you look really good for your age. It's all that plastic surgery I've been having. Oh, yeah. For, <laughs> yeah, right? It's no. all that silicone. <laughs> Looks good, though. Um, so, any big plans for your birthday? Mm, nope. All the restaurants are closed except for takeout. We're still in the midst of this um, plague or whatever we're calling it, virus. Mm-hmm. So here we are right next to each other. I, um, If we get sick, I think we're going to get sick together. <laughs> yes, because I am working from home from my day job. Right. Me too. Me too. So um, my husband and I went to Walmart yesterday. Man, we had to wait outside for us to go in. And they've got all these measures and... Um, yeah, it was just very surreal. The whole thing is just, my, I mean, like, the last two years of our lives have been surreal, have they not? Yes. Um, it's just, I mean, from, yeah, Hurricane Michael, then this, and... Um, and then your, your you know, your, uh, what is it, remish, relapse? Yes, because that wasn't the first time I'd had right. the cancer. So, yeah, you've cancer. had a, a bigger year Two years than I have, Lord. Yes, and and I know that I think Walmart's only letting like ten people in at a time. Right. Yes. And my husband's like, "Yeah, this is ground zero for COVID nineteen. But mm. you know, we got we went in and got our stuff and and got out. So you know, I mean, you have you can't not you have to eat. Yes, and you know, I tried to do the Walmart pickup, and it was like two days out. Instacart was two days out. So. I went to a local grocery store, which we've already discussed the chaos that that was. And because I have those cloth masks already from when I was going through my treatments and the surgeries and that sort of thing. So I went ahead and wore my mask. But then I saw this lady who looked like she was straight out of 60 days in with her freaking hands down the front of her fucking pants. And I'm like, lady, really? That's nasty. And you're going to go and touch a possible orange that I might, or apple that I might buy. Yeah, stay away from that produce, people. I don't know. Yeah, I just don't understand that. Your hands are down the front of your pants. Okay, well, if it feels good, play with it. <laughs> just don't do it on your way into the grocery store, okay? No. <laughs> so, <laughs> what do you have for us this week? Well, um, you know, last week you did your anti-government showdown with Gordon. What was it? Gordon? Gordon Call. Gordon Call. And you had um, talked about how he was a member of the Posse Comitatus. Well, that's what I tried to say. Yes. And, <laughs> and I told you that the one that I was researching, coincidentally, and by the way, we don't talk to each other when we plan our murders because we want it to be a surprise for you and for each other. So when she did this, I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I'm doing one that's got a, a, a loosely, a loose connection there. So this week, um, we are going to go to a small Nebraska town near Rulo, Nebraska. It took place in the early 1980s. And um, the po- the Posse Comitatus is loosely, um, well, we'll just say it's part of the philosophy behind this group. Okay. All right, so I'm going to start with the story of Rick Stice and Sandra. I'm going to call it Butrick instead of Buttrick. (laughs) 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 I don't know. I don't mean to laugh at this person's name, but it looks like Buttrick, but it's, um, I'm going to say Butrick. 
they were high school sweethearts in a small in a small town and at the age of 16 they ended up getting married because she was pregnant so this is 1976 um they married because she was pregnant and it was okay i mean they loved each other his family owned a an 80 acre hog farm and his dad's like look you know you can take over i'm done with this and so they got this 80 acre hog farm now it needed a lot of work so they ended up going to the bank and borrowing some money now the posse comatatus do you want to just remind us a little bit about what that is it is basically kind of like a sovereign citizen type anti-tax anti-government type organization where when i researched last week for the gordon call was he was a, a tax protester it's you know, they don't want to give their money to the state. They're very anti-federal government, which then trickles down to state. Um, right. And they so also forth. have, and I'm going to get into this a little bit more um, in just a few minutes. But just keep in mind that this young couple ended up borrowing money from the bank in order to fix up the farmhouse. They modernized the hog pens. They bought a new pickup. They did some work around the house. Then they started um, having children. Of course, Aura was born in 1976. Their second child, Barry, was born in 1978. They were a happy little family, but by the time their youngest, Luke, came along in 1980, they were experiencing financial trouble. The hogs were not bringing in enough money to cover their living expenses, so they were having a really hard time making their bank payments. So in the, in the 1980s, really is kind of when farmers started having a lot of issues. Yes. Right? That's like with farm aid, remember? Yes. I mean, I was only, you know four at in 1980 but i remember the whole farm aid movement and that's how you know all there were a lot of protests farmers were losing their land um they were losing their their properties because they couldn't make their taxes they couldn't pay their bank loans kind of like last week yes exactly like last week now just keep that in mind because these are this these are the same people that would have helped gordon call if he came knocking at their door Right. And I think that all of this sounds very familiar. Like, I am pretty certain that I've watched something or listened to something. I don't know if I'd listened to a podcast that covered it or, but all of this is coming back. I like have these, I think I watched something because I did watch this whole. What I will say, and I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but when I find somebody that I I find a story that I think is um, interesting, I'll Google it to see if somebody else has done it. And I don't find anything. But then once I've already done all the hard work, now I realize that, uh, yeah, this is this has been done. I know that the Oxygen has some show on it. I did not see the show. Um, I don't know if other, I think some podcasts called Cults about Cults has done the story. And maybe that's it because I did listen to that podcast for a while or maybe... I- I mean, I don't know. So, I just know yeah. this sounds very familiar. I don't know if I'm going to do the story justice as opposed to, say, you know, Oxygen that has an like, unlimited budget and, you know, all kinds of research methods. But, you know, I think I'm going to do okay with it. I think you will, too. So, like I said, they were having a hard time paying their bills, but they made, they they did things the best they could. You know, they didn't go shopping. The kids wore hand-me-downs. They stopped going to the movies. They gave up all the other frills that, you know, um, whatever, going out to eat, things like that. By April of 1982, money was so tight that, you know, they had to make decisions on which bill am I going to pay this week? You know, we've all been there. Do I pay my electric bill or do I pay my car payment? What they ended up doing was dropping their health insurance in order to pay their bank loan. Now, I know that a lot of people do not have health insurance, um, because it's so expensive. And that was one, that was one of the first things that they let go. Yes. Okay. So yes, it was on, I watched an episode of Evil Lives Here. Oh, okay. I'm fairly certain that's where it came, where I watched it because. On Discovery ID? Yes. Okay. Yes. I'm, I mean, it was a while ago, so. And I saw the Ashley Benson episode last night, by the way. How was that? I mean, it was okay. I feel like we had more information that they didn't include, but you know, whatever. I don't uh, there's a lot yeah. of information. There was also a lot of information that they included that we didn't have. So right. it was just kind of filled in some of the holes. They but probably yes. had access to her family and friends. Right. And they did. They interviewed her family. and, and uh, But I also, we also used interviews from family and friends that we found too. So yes, because we didn't I, personally interview them. But, no, no. But I did yeah. find where 
you know, they put stuff yes. out on like Facebook, a yes. public forum for anyone to see. Right. Okay, so back to Sandra and Rick Stice. A month after dropping their health health insurance, Sandra was diagnosed as having Hodgkin's disease. This is a deadly form of cancer that can often be held off for many years with expensive treatments. Without insurance, those treatments were out of the question. And as it turned out, she had less than a year to live. That's awful. It was. It is awful. Now, terrified and desperate, they they start turning to God. They start going to revival meetings. They are seeking a faith healer. That quest led Rick and Sandra to several revival meetings held in 1982 in Kansas by a guy named James Rickstrom, Wickstrom, Wickstrom, who billed himself as the National Director of Counterinsurgency for the Posse Comitatus. So here they fall into the arms of the Posse Comitatus. Right, because they are, their propaganda is angled at the the people in this situation of this part of the world where the farmers are struggling. Yes. So their, yes. their con was to get these people in and sell them on their snake oil, essentially. And they fell for it hook, line, and sinker, to use an old cliche, yes. But when you're desperate. Yes, yes. Now, Wickstrom as a spokesperson for Posse Comitatus and his followers gave seminars across the Midwest at county, at county meetings. So he traveled around. He had barbecues. There were farmers rallies. They sold and distributed thousands of leaflets, books, and tracts spreading hateful messages of neo-Nazism and white supremacy. Now, this ideology resonated with many farmers in the area who joined the cause. Because I'm sure it was like a slow release, too. I mean, Hitler didn't just come out of the gate, you know, spewing his total, complete hate for everyone in the world. But he had his tight followers who believed that, you know, like you're you're being overtaxed and it's all oh, because yeah. of the Jews. And yeah. So Wickstrom, he had a, na- a nationwide reputation for fire and brimstone speeches. He kind of mixed posse comitatus with the Christian identity. Do you know anything about Christian identity? Not a whole lot, but I know that they're on the fringes of... They're like, fundamentalist yeah. Christian, and I don't know that much about them, but they are um, They are on, like, the Southern Pover- Poverty Law um, Center's, like, top 10 or something like that as, as being, you know, really, really seriously fundamental. Are they considered a cult? They're considered, um, I don't know if they, they would be considered a cult. I don't know. However, um, okay, so Wickstrom demanded farmers to fire the government and adopt the posse code that teaches that God personally revealed the U.S. Constitution, complete with the Bill of Rights, to the founding fathers. <laughs> I mean, that's just so idiotic to me that anyone would fall for that. But people did. Now, he preached the posse's belief that a conspiracy by a cabal of international Jews amended the document in violation of God's law. I'm sorry. When anyone uses the word cabal. I know. I think, I know. okay, put your tin hat on. Right. Yes. Okay. So he had them believing that um, the Jews are the ones who established a federal income tax. They also gave the vote to blacks and women who are otherwise working for the downfall of the white race. So... Um, yeah, just misogynistic, prejudicial thinking all the way around, right? Like yes. a certain meme is coming to mind, but I won't describe that. <laughs> so in his hate-filled sermons, Wickstrom warned that international bankers led by the same Jewish conspiracy were working right that very moment to foreclose farm loans. This got the attention of many hurting Midwest farmers, including... Rick Stice. In one videotape tirade, Wickstrom yelled, Yahweh, our father is at work, setting the stage for the final act against the Christ-murdering Jews and their father, Satan. Rick was, as I said, enthralled. His wife was about to die. He's facing the prospect of losing the farm foreclosure, so he eagerly embraced Wickstrom's credo, and he regularly attended the meetings. So his, uh, his mind is wide open to this. While he's going to these meetings, he meets another regular attendee of these of Wickstrom's who and his name is Michael Ryan. Now I have to chuckle at Michael Ryan because my brother's name is Michael Ryan. Of course last night that's Michael is his first name and Ryan is his middle name. But he could be quite sadistic as a child too. I have a really good friend named Michael Ryan. Yeah. That's his first name oh, yeah. and his last okay. name. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, just a quick story. My brother um used to catch palmetto bugs, which by the way are about um, an, an inch and a half to two inch looking cockroach. 
and I remember he tied one in the middle by a string. So it's and he um, taped it over my door right about face. Um, oh, hell no. Face height. And then he yelled because, you know, back then we had landlines. And he's like, telephone. <laughs> and I come running out of my room. And this palmetto cockroach thing is like hitting me. It's still kicking its legs. Shut up. Shut okay. up. Shut up. Shut up. Everybody's a badass until the palmetto bug starts to fly. Exactly. <laughs> and it was quite sadistic, which is why I want to go over that. Right. So this Michael Ryan was six foot, six feet, two inches. 235 pounds. He was an unemployed livestock truck driver um, from Whiting, Kansas. He was described later by um, someone in the FBI or the KBI as Jim Wickstrom's main man in Kansas. He wore his hair in a crew cut. His beard was likened to that of an Old Testament prophet's beard. And he wore farmer's bib overalls. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> right? What do they call those? Uh, murdering pants. Murder pants, right? <laughs> but he had swaggering charisma. I mean, people fell for him, including Ryan Stice. Ryan was a sponge for Rick Wickstrom's lessons of racism and anti-Semitism. And then um, um, he just had the charisma to spread that hate. Okay, I have a question. So are these people predisposition to racism were they already like kind of racist in their own mind or were they just so desperate and i mean did was this guy spewing racism right off the bat and they were like yeah or did he kind of ease it in there and try to, and convince them that I, I would have to say i would have to take the religious side of it that they were god-fearing people and this message made sense to them like you know god God is angry that the Jews have gotten in here. We need to prepare for the fight. So I'm going to, I'm going to lean more towards the religious aspect of it because these are very devout. You know, when you look at the revival movements of even the 1800s, I know a lot of that took place. People are God fearing Christians doesn't mean that they're automatically going to be anti-Semites and racist. So I think that, like the mindset of these people at their time because they were so low and so desperate these these ryan and the and wickstrom, wickstrom were able to then take advantage of these poor people yes yes because the banks the just, banks are going to take your farmhouse you need to do something now but you know what? They, this is a huge form of manipulation, which I'm going to get to later, because they were telling these farmers, don't pay your taxes. We are anti-tax. Do not give the government your tax money. And yeah. we're going to see that that comes back later. To bite them in the ass big uh, time. Okay. So um, on he, he Ryan was born August 3rd, 1948. People who knew him when he was young said that he was low average. Like he barely made passing grades. He dropped out of high school just shy of graduation. He was already married and had three or four kids by his mid twenties. And he was trying to support them through odd jobs, you know, offices, stores, machine shops, but nothing lasted. He did have some success as a trucker, but he ended up getting some sort of injury, which made driving painful. And he started to use marijuana. Now I know, right? I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the information I found, like, it uses marijuana as, like, you know, the source the of evil. Drug. Yes. Well, and, and they say he was a low average individual, but... School-wise. Yeah. Right? He must, but he must not have truly been a low average of and low average intelligence because... He was a smart con artist. So I'll put it that way. Because but school was not the thing for him. Yeah. Because yeah. low average intelligence individuals are not able to con and manipulate and i mean i wouldn't think they right anything that i've ever watched on cult-like behavior these people are very right intelligent i agree i agree now there is a book that i try to get my hands on called evil harvest it was written by rod colvin um i did find like excerpts of this book but i could not get a hold of the book right now you know um amazon's not doing any kind of shipping the library didn't have it i probably could have downloaded it on my kindle but i really don't like reading on my kindle no neither do i <laughs> all right so whatever despite the issues he was charismatic and he preached not only the posse comitatus rhetoric but also the christian identity like i told you but he kind of twisted it to fit his own 
of course he believes, did. right? That's what um, they do. Now, he claimed that the Christian identity teachings told him that he was one of God's chosen people and he was a member of the Israelite tribe. But he was an anti-Semite? Exactly. Christian identity claims that Jews were the demonic offspring of a sexual uni- union between Eve and Satan. So they're mm-hmm. not like we are. They're That's what they're saying. They believe that blacks are subhuman because they can't blush. They further preach that blacks who are no better than beasts of the field are the tools of the Jews in their fight to destroy white Western men. You know, people in that area of the world aren't white, right? Right. I mean, they might not be African black, but they're definitely not right. Anglo-Saxon Caucasian. Well, neither was Jesus. <laughs> okay. No. All right. Now, Ryan had the ability to ma- manipulate both men and women, as we're going to find out in a little while. He claimed to be Yahweh's prophet and that God, or Yahweh, as he called him, spoke through him through an arm trick that he learned from Wickstrom. I'm sorry, what? An arm trick. Okay, let me go. Okay. So in the oh, arm yes. test, a, pu- a person would hold an arm at out at a 45 degree angle. So just picture Jesus on a cross. That's that's how your arm would be out. Like, like I don't know if they would have both arms out or just one. But straight out from the side of your body, okay? Now, in the arm test, the person would hold it 45-degree angle from his or her shoulder while the person who was administering the test would grab the shoulder with one hand and the wrist with the other. Then, addressing God as Yahweh, the tester would ask a question. If the arm stayed up, the answer was yes, and if it dropped, the answer was no. Now, psychologists later testified that the person who was administering the arm test has full control of whether the arm falls because of the grip on the shoulder. But people believe this. They're like, my arm wouldn't fall. Like you wouldn't feel somebody yanking on your shoulder. I don't know. You know what? We should try this later. Try the arm test. Maybe I can tell you that I'm, (laughs) yeah, give me all your money. (laughs) Yeah, all of your money. (laughs) Wow. Uh, people fell for this, all right? And these are desperate people. You would have, I'm sorry, you would have to be desperate to believe that. And I think that now that you mention it, watching that show, that they were even questioning them, like, how, and he was like, yeah, thinking back on it, how would I fall for that? But we were so desperate at the time mm-hmm. that we were like, oh, my God, it's a miracle. Right? You know? Yes. I mean. Yes. And at the trial, there were a lot of witnesses. And all these witnesses were like, yeah, it was real. I mean, it was unbelievable. You had no control over what your arm did. That was Yahweh speaking. I mean, so they really just, believed it. Let's just face it. If Jesus came back today and it was really Jesus, is someone going to believe him? They're going to be like, that crazy guy thinks he's Jesus. <laughs> well, I think there was a crazy Jesus guy running down the street naked today. Yeah, it was. Okay. He was. now after sandra stice died in april of 1983 all these guys were sitting on the porch of the rulo farmhouse so they all came over i guess for the wake or whatever you know rick stice ended up inviting ryan and all these other guys to come and live on the farm because the arm test told him to do that oh i bet the arm test did the arm test yahweh yahweh speaking through Michael Ryan said, do you want the followers to live on Stice land? And Yahweh, through the arm test, said yes. Mm-hmm. So all of these people move on. Now, some of the people who were there, out of some of them, was one lady named Cheryl Gibson. Now, Cheryl Gibson and her five children um, ended up leaving her husband, the children's father, without telling them anything. So the husband comes home from wherever he worked And his wife and kids aren't there. There's no note. There's no anything. And so he believes that his wife and children have just like up and disappeared. He has no idea where they are. Okay. But she, she says that Yahweh told her to go ahead and leave without telling anyone. So she and her children end up moving to the Stice farm. Yes. I Yes. I remember watching this going, what? WTF. Now, later on, it, it does come out that she and her husband had problems, but this is the Midwest in the early 80s, and really, women didn't have many options. You know, if you're a, a farmer's wife what with five kids, I mean, even today, what options do women really have, right? I mean, if you're not educated and you've never, because 
and that's not a dig at anyone right. by any means. But, you know, I mean, you hear all the time of women who were married for 25 years, 30 years, and then they get divorced. And they're like, what do I do now? Right. I haven't worked. But I, she, this, this, she was, con- she was conned into thinking that this was Yahweh's will. Yahweh told her, leave your husband, take your children, go to this farm in, um, outside of Rulo, Nebraska. And I really do think a certain type of person is susceptible yes. to this type I agree. of brainwashing yes i agree i agree now she further testified um as well as other witnesses that for nearly two years they all lived on this communal farm and it um it got up to about 25 followers we'll talk about that in a minute oh my god we have this friend and we always talk about how we're we're all we're all going to move to a compound is that us (laughs) i'm not moving to a compound i'm an introvert are you kidding well no we'd have to live several like yeah, I need my own place. Com- okay. It had to be a big ass compound. Yeah. But we always joke we're gonna move to the compound. Yeah. Well, oh, are we starting our own cult. <laughs> so she said, and the other witnesses said that the arm test dictated every decision that was made on this in, in this commune. If Ryan wanted to take one of the women as his wife, he would grab her arm and ask Yahweh for a sign. If a man were to be punished, Ryan likewise would grab his arm and ask Yahweh for a sign. Now, he did have five wives on this commune, okay? He did have his original wow. wife that was legally recognized by the, um, by the government. But then at the commune, he took four more. Okay, yes. Yeah, see, as soon as Jonathan comes home and says, this is my new wife, it's on like... Right, right. No, no, no. <laughs> right? I'm not made that way. Okay. So one of the first things that he did after moving onto the farm in May of 1983 was to use the arm test to order Stice to stop raising hogs because pork violates kosher law. So, you know, they're right, yeah. Um... I thought they didn't like the Jews. They don't. But remember that Jew, that's a perversion of the actual Christian identity. So the Jews, right, they still have some of the laws. Now, I do want to point out that this is also a little bit, um, because what happens if you can't pay your taxes? What's going to happen to your house? Um, They come and take it. Okay. So if you can't pay your taxes, then your house can be taken from you. Yeah, they'll sell it to the lowest bidder. If if Sty stops raising hogs, how else is he going to make enough money to pay his taxes? They're going to start taking okay. money from these people. So, so let's just say that Yahweh says, okay, no more raising hogs. It's violating kosher law. Now there's no way to pay for money to pay taxes, okay? The hogs were the only source of income on the farm. But, um, and in, within a few months, the bank finally foreclosed. At this point, two of Ryan's followers through the Yahweh arm test, James Haverkamp and Lynn Thiele, or Thiel, bought the deed from the bank. So to me, this is a well-calculated um, ploy to get this man's property from him. Absolutely. So this property that his family had and that was passed down from his father to him is now no longer in the Stice name. It has been taken away because of Yahweh. Yahweh said. No, Yahweh did not say that. All right. Now, other followers included Haverkamp's mother, Maxine, who would later become one of Ryan's wives, who were all called queens. All right. So the wives are queens. Ryan was the king. Michael Ryan was the king. And then his children, his his son, Dennis, who was 16 at the time, he was a prince. Okay. Haverkamp's cousin, Timothy, and his niece, Lisa Haverkamp, were there. She was another of Ryan's concubines. The other two queens were Gibson and Ryan's original wife, Ruth, who was the mother of his three children. And then, of course, the oldest, Dennis Ryan, was a 16-year-old who's going to come into play later. He was... He was known as the Prince of Darkness. Now, to me, of darkness, yes. But um, you know, I think anytime anybody says anything to him, it could be it could be a bone of contention because they could get severe punishment if they did not treat the royalty with respect. Good grief! All right. Now, among other members who joined later were two men from the Mennonite community near Beatrice, Nebraska. They were James Thim and his friend John David Andreas. Both of them had been unable to find jobs. So at the peak of the membership, it was roughly 25 people. It was failed farmers and others who joined together under Ryan's leadership. Okay, I'm interested in finding out how they recruited two people from the Mennonite community. 
Well, I mean, these are farmers who who are unable to find jobs. And Mennonite, they're very minimalist, right? Yes. And I mean, they, they're like a branch of um, of the Amish. Right. So very minimal living. So whatever this is, it appealed to these two young guys. They must have been banished. Maybe they were okay. um, shunned from the Mennonite community. It could be. I don't know anything about Mennonites except for... They shun them. And when they shun them, you got to go. Okay. It seems like somebody we used to work with was a Mennonite, but maybe I'm wrong. Really? Yes. Yeah. No, no. No. I know who you're talking about. Okay. No. Okay. Uh, Seventh-day Adventist. Okay. Which, which is... a Yes. Okay. So. Seventh-day Adventist. Those are freaky. I'm not going to get into that, but yeah. Ugh. But right. I, I think I read in some of my research last week where some of the seven day, Seventh Day Adventists kind of evolved into some of yes. this, but not not all of them. And that's what I'm thinking is that, you know, like well, we're going to find out later, like Rick Stice and um, and his wife, they grew up Methodist, uh, you know, just normal Methodist. So we're, we'll talk about that later when, we, when the community um, has their say. Now on the Stice farm, Ryan and his followers would sit around, they'd smoke pot and they'd discuss the Bible. He would tell them, um, he would tell them acting as Yahweh, he would t- tell them prophecies. One prophecy that was, um, that was worrisome to all of them was that an epic battle between good and evil, which meant Jews, bankers, and the government as being evil, and them would happen. And it was foretold in the book of Revelation. Now, Ryan told his band that the place called Armageddon in the book of Revelation was really nothing more than the wheat fields that were right outside of Rulo. So he had his zealots start preparing for Armageddon. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, that seems like what the what these zealots, what they do. I mean, everything is Armageddon's coming on. So, and I remember, um, Seventh-day Adventists are an offshoot of the Branch Davidians. Oh, which is Waco. And this all, like, all now, yep. just for future reference, we have an idea in the making with another podcaster um, where we're going to feature um, one cult. And I think you're doing Waco, right? I am going to do the okay. Branch Davidians, David Koresh, because I did a research paper in okay. college on him and Jim Jones. Okay. Which- Jim Jones is interesting. I'm doing... Um, uh, LDS, an offshoot of LDS. Oh. And I don't know what, who is our, uh, is it her name? What's her name? Ariel. Ariel. What is she doing? She, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Um, she has a couple of different ones in mind that she okay. is really invested in. So we haven't talked too much because I said we needed to yeah. wait a couple yeah. of months. Um, but with, yeah. So yeah. we're all there. So be on the lookout for a collaboration. Yeah, that sounds great. Now, these guys, they'd sit around um, smoking pot, discussing the end of the world. They would also be required to listen to dozens of audio and videotapes of Wickstrom, the sermons, watch repeated screenings of the Hollywood movie Red Dawn. And in that movie, Soviet troops invade a small heartland farm town only to have local teenagers fight a guerrilla war from the countryside. So obtaining permission from Yahweh via arm tests to smoke marijuana, Ryan urged his followers to take the drug and then to run about the farm, firing their automatic weapons at various targets, representing Soviet soldiers. What? Yes. Now, neighboring neighboring um, farms, neighboring farms would hear these drills or whatnot. They're, you know what? You're out in the country, a bunch of gunfire. It's not... I guess it's not anything they call the police. This is during the Cold War. Yeah. Technically. So, I mean, like, people were really, I mean, we did Cold War, like, remember having to do those, like, uh, drills in school? Did you ever have to do, probably, Probably, yeah. I mean, it's scary. Like, hiding under a desk. Yeah, hiding under, like, yeah. yeah. I remember we watched, what was the name of the, I can't remember the name of the movie, but there was a movie that I somehow managed to watch as a kid, which I should have never watched, but it was about a um, a Cold War bombing in the United States. Oh. oh, gosh. I remember my mom was a wreck. And I just remember a couple of different snippets from it because this little kid was dying from the exposure. And, um, and my mom, and it was about the same age as my little brother, and they... My mom was just a complete wreck ever because the kid looked like my brother. Oh and he was, my gosh. Was, the mom was holding him naked. Like, I mean, he, you couldn't see anything, but like he was vomiting and stuff. My mom, because my, I mean, I, 
Then I was like, why are you crying? Today, if something resembled my, my kid, I'd be like a fucking wreck too. But God, I can't remember the name. I want to say Robert Duvall was in it. I don't know why I want to say that. But during this time, this was a real threat. People were freaking out. I mean, just. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was anything like the 50s and 60s where people were, you know, what, what was that Brendan Fraser movie where he comes out of that? And they think he's Jesus when he comes out of that. Uh, God, it had Christopher Walken in it. And. Brendan Fraser would come out. Alicia Silverstone was in it. And um, he had these baseball cards, like mint condition baseball cards. I don't and know. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah. Brendan like, Fraser, I think of the yeah the college one with Joe Pesci and then Caveman. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, they were they were forced to watch this. Now, in addition, how do they get money to buy arms and stuff? Because they don't do hog farming anymore. Well, the answer to that is they steal from other farmers they steal um, other equipment um, from farmers and then they sell it to, to stockpile their ammunition and their food. So in June 1985, police arrest a couple of Ryan's faithful, John Andreas and James Haverkamp, for carrying concealed weapons. Their arrest led to the first of two raids on the Rulo property, which uncovered a cache of rifles and automatic weapons and 150,000 rounds of ammunition. Holy crap. Right? Yeah. There were staggering amounts of raw material from bo- for bomb making, including 3,000 10-pound bags of charcoal. They also recovered more than $250,000 worth of property, including motorcycles, a backhoe, and other machinery that had been reported stolen from farmers in the area. They also discovered Cheryl Gibson, remember her, and the five children that, went bis- that had disappeared from their Robinson, Kansas home. She had run away from the troubled marriage and ended up on the phone, um, a farm as one of the queens. And her husband had been searching for them since they vanished a year earlier. So were they officially reported missing? They, they she, He had gone to the police and the police were like, you know, look, she took the kids and she left you. You know, we've got them as, as missing. But I don't think a whole lot of effort went into searching for them. Not like there was no be. evidence of foul play. You know, it was obvious that she had just picked up and left on her own. Wow. Yeah. The police, um, a couple of months later raided the farm again because under their police kind of had a clue to look out for John Andreas and James Haverkamp. And I'm going to come back to them to that in a minute. But while they had Andreas and Haverkamp in their custody, the guys told of two murders. They said, look, I know where the, we know where the bodies are buried. There are two murders. Let's make a deal. Now Gibson, Andreas and the Haverkamps and others were later to testify that Ryan used the arm test in order to, and um, to order various punishments against the men on the farm, not just men, children and women too, but usually just the men. Now punishments could occur for various reasons, but the worst punishment occurred if you question Yahweh's word. So if the test came out and you're like, Oh, that's bullshit. Then you would be punished and severely. So now some of his favorite punishments consisted of forced sodomy and other sexual profanities. Yes. You're speechless right now. I am. Um, so, how did he like? Uh, how did he say? So this is your punishment, and this is how I'm justifying for sodomy. Yahweh said the arm test. Yahweh said so. If you disagreed with what Yahweh said, then you would be under the arm test, and your arm would be <laughs> out. And what um, should the punishment be sodomy? And if your arm, if the answer was yes, your arm would not go down and then you would get sodomized or you would have to sodomize something else. Ah. Now, some of the um, witnesses testified that James Thim and Rick Stice, who was the owner of the farm before it was taken away, questioned Ryan about something. And I, it wasn't clear exactly what they questioned him about, but it Ah. was intense. So Thim and Stice were forced to sodomize each other. As well as the communal goat on several occasions. A communal goat. A communal goat. So I'm sorry, but okay, I have a lot of questions. I do okay. Too. I do too. So and, now, um, now I'm not a guy, so I don't know about getting an erection. But if somebody had a gun to my head and said, oh, you need to sodomize this goat. It would have to be with a device, I would think. Right. I mean, I don't, unless. But like, okay, so Rick Stice, again, was later on forced to sodomize his own five-year-old son. Oh, shut the fuck up. I'm sorry. And he did it. 
He sodomized his yes, five-year-old son. But, uh, well, no, uh, there's no excuse for that. I'm sorry. I don't care who the fuck told you to do it. That's when you say, you can kill me now. Right, right. So, Thim and other members were watching while this little boy was being sodomized. They, uh, you know, when they were forced to do it again and again and again, they finally said, look, this is enough. I'm not doing it anymore. And that triggers a tragedy. So, for some reason... Ryan, Michael Ryan had a thing against Luke, the five-year-old. So remember that Sandra and Rick had three children and the five-year-old, for some reason, Ryan painted the sign of the beast, which is the number 666 on Luke's back. He, he claimed that um, Luke was a mongrel, that he was a seed of Satan. And he really just did not like the boy. He would take the kid out in freezing weather Throw him out. He would um, make him sit outside in the cold and then drench him with ice water. He started horribly abusing child, slamming his tiny body against walls, threatening to shoot him. He would use his mouth as an ashtray, among other torments. He would force people to sodomize him, um, force him to give oral sex. Oh, my God. Now, according to testimony given by Cheryl Gibson, who was the, the woman who disappeared with her five children, Um, At the end of the month, Ryan told his wives to stand on the farmhouse porch and watch. And at that time, he was dangling Luke from a dog leash looped about his neck. Now, some sources say that this was when um, the little boy Luke died. Um, But when he was doing it, he said that this is the mongrel, the seed of Satan. I don't think that's when he died because most sources say that what Ryan did was he picked the boy up and slammed him into the kitchen cabinets, which caused him to die. But another source said that he got pushed out of the way and he went flying into a bookcase, landed on his head, and he just died in his sleep. So whatever the case, I guess there's no really, no one can really say how the boy died because all of those things happened. Could have been any one of those things that led to the death. Now, once Ryan, um, once the little boy died, Ryan forced Luke's father, Rick Stice, to dig the boy's grave. Now, he was buried in a shallow grave, and after his son's death, Rick Stice tried numerous times to flee, to run away. He was caught a bunch of times before he was finally able to run away. Okay, so where were the the other two kids? The other two kids were forced to stay inside with the women, and there's really no information about those other two kids. Okay. So they, you know, a five-year-old, maybe he had hyperactivity. His mom had just died. They're grieving. A five-year-old kid needs a lot of attention. Maybe he doesn't obey like other kids. Who knows? Wow. Right? So, finally, Rick Stice does flee the community. He's able to get away. This angers Ryan, Michael Ryan. He's not finished doling out the punishment. And it really got much worse on Thim after Stice disappeared. Now, all I can... uh, There's no... um, record of what Stice did when he left but to me I think he may have gone to the police and said you need to look out for these guys this is what's happening and they can't get on without a search warrant but he said oh well we're stealing things and this gives the police what I think gives them the idea to to pull over these two guys the uh what uh, probable cause yes 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 all right so in April he ordered them tied to an overhead pipe in Stice's abandoned hog barn where he was sodomized with shovel handles and beaten for four days. Then Andreas and the prince, who was 16-year-old Dennis Ryan, shot Thim's fingers with their handguns. So he had he had 10 holes in his fingers. Yes, from, from getting shot in each finger. Um, he, Michael Ryan, put on yellow dishwashing gloves and using a razor and a pair of pliers, he began <gasps> skinning James Thim alive. Shit. I, yes, I yeah. remember this from the show. It just, oh, God. Yeah, every time he would take a strip off, he would like waggle it in front of the victim, going, um, and then, you know, this victim Thim is like screaming for Yahweh <sighs> for mercy. Oh, my God. After about the fourth day, Ryan's getting tired of this guy. So he orders his son and. Um, the other guy, um, to break Thim's legs. They end up breaking both of his legs, breaking his arms. They, um, take him down from where he's hanging. And the 235 pound Ryan ends up jumping repeatedly on (gasps) the man's chest until he dies. Then to make sure that he's dead, he fires a bullet into Thim's head. And then he's buried in a shallow grave. Good night. 
Now, Dennis Ryan and Timothy Haverkamp were convicted of second-degree murder. So there's a trial and everything. I'm skipping all that. They were convicted of second-degree murder and given life sentences. Now, Dennis Ryan, who was 16 at the time, his sentence was later commuted. And we talked about what does commute mean? You want to... What does that mean when your sentence is commuted? I mean, so, for instance, if you're giving, if you're given a, um, like, a, if you're given death you, and your sentence is commuted to life. So it's like your sentence is lessened. Okay. So a pardon would be that you are pardoned. You're not a criminal. You're not a felon. You're not anything. You're all just right. a regular citizen. You can vote. You can do all of those things. But if it's commuted... Let's say you're serving 30 years in jail and they commute your sentence to time served. Okay. And that's what happened with him. His sentence was commuted. So he, I think he served 15 years and then his sentence was commuted. Now, at the time when he was only 16, his attorney said, you know, he's following direct orders from his father. He was totally brainwashed by he's the prince and Yahweh is, is speaking through his dad. I mean, if he was raised this way from birth, he wouldn't know any different. He would just... Yeah, but still, I mean, I I feel like... If you have a rational brain, yes, you would think at at least, like, this can't quite be right. Right, right. I mean, did he not ever go to school and... I don't know that much about him. Um, What I do know is that he was interviewed. I did watch an interview with him, Mm -hmm. and um, he said that his dad deserved all that he he got. So his dad, you know, he... Well, I'm going to tell you in just a minute. Well, he probably abused the kid, yeah, too. Yeah, who I knows? Mean, Was the kid yeah. sodomized by his dad? Probably. I don't know. Now, the other two guys who took part, Andreas and James Haverkamp, they received 30-year sentences for the torture. Michael Ryan was sentenced to 10 years to life for one count of murder in the second degree. So that was for Lucas. He got five years for possession of a defaced firearm. And then he got death. For one count of murder and first degree, and that was for the first degree death of them. Defaced firearm is that like they saw they like yeah I think took they off the number took the off the number or number? sawed off the shotgun or something. Oh, okay, you know. Now many claim that they were robbed because he was not executed. He got the death sentence, but he was not executed because he died of terminal brain cancer on May twenty fourth, two thousand fifteen. Such a shame. And that's when his son was interviewed, saying, "You know what? He deserved to die. You know, it's like I know what he did was wrong. So it was you know, probably very painful. The brain cancer. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully they didn't give him anything to ease his pain. That's all I can say." Well, yeah, because in 2015, if he was given the death sentence and he was put to death, it would have been by lethal injection. So this maybe well, was and that worse. was the thing because I didn't go into all of that, but the the drugs that they had for him, his his he got a stay of execution because the drugs that they had were were expired, and the drug and we've done this before yeah. in another murder where the drugs that they had used the three type were deemed cruel and unusual or Whatever. something. We couldn't get it. His his execution had been stayed a couple of times because of reasons like that. So God right. said, yeah, you know what? Yeah, you're Here done, you go. bitch. Right? Yeah. yeah. Now, after Thim was murdered. Yahweh did yeah. the arm test and said, you're about to die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stice did return to the commune after, after he had run away the first time. He ended up running away a second time. And that's when he tells the story, told the story to prosecutors. He did serve six months in prison for his part in the commune's thefts, and he lost custody of his other children who ended up going with um, family members on their mother's side. He was granted court order visitation rights. Okay, well, that's... Now, I'm kind of like, does he deserve to see his kid? Does he not? I kind of feel like he was taken advantage of in a situation, but then I also kind of feel like that, well, you got to have your own brain in your head to realize that sodomizing your child, no matter what anyone fucking says, do what you will with me. But I'm not doing that shit to my kid. Right. And uh, now Sandra's mother, Garnita Butrick, remembered Stice as a typical small town teenager because remember they got married when her daughter married him when they were 16. Mm -hmm. She said he was politically disinterested in anything. He was active with family in the Methodist church. So she was really shocked at how easily he was so manipulated. But his wife was dying and he was seeking and his in the bank her. was coming after his house yes. yes he was desperate right it's really sad it, it 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 is sad that he was in such a state to where he was able someone was able to take that kind of advantage yes. of him yes but like you there are a lot of um there are a lot of people that just can't understand 
why he would do that. There are very, there's very little sympathy for him. Uh, For example, somebody said, one relative said that people here in Rulo don't want to have anything to do with Rick. They can't help thinking that he should have taken a bullet himself instead of letting his own boy die. Um, the kid probably would have died anyway. Right. But unfortunately. Right. But he would not have had that guilt on his shoulders if no. he would have just. No, you, you would know, have to kill me. Or taken your kids and get in the, gotten the fuck out. Yeah. Or whatever. Now, it's easy for us to say. Right. Because but, we're not there. Um, what what Sandra's mo- mother said that this has just been horrible. I don't feel right about Rick. I just can't because of what happened on the farm. But you can understand how he needs to put this behind him, too. He lost everything. He lost his farm. He lost his wife. He lost his son and the rest of his family, too. He did. Golly. And it reminds me kind of like how people are taken advantage of like that. Because like I was saying, I did the paper in college on uh, David Koresh and Jim Jones. Well, as I was reading the research, reading books for my paper, you know, one of, there was a lady that was a follower of Jim Jones and she was like actually in a different city where they had like a satellite office. And when they called to say, it's time, it's time. Instead of giving her children the Kool-Aid, she slit their throats and she drank the Kool-Aid herself. Like how far manipulated, how far mentally are you just out of there that you that it is a rational idea in your head to slit the throats of your children and then drink the Kool-Aid yourself. Shit, Jim Jones didn't even drink the Kool-Aid. Someone had to shoot his ass. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I just can't, I can't wrap my mind around it. And I would hope that even in my lowest of lows, that I would never be able to be manipulated and taken advantage of like this to where I would put my children at risk. I mean, I think there's fervor and, you know, when there are things that you want to believe, then you, you believe it. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not like that. I, I'm a very distrusting person of anyone, you know. But. I mean, yeah. Golly, that was a doozy. Yep. So yes, it sad. was. Golly. And, you know, and we mentioned the collaboration with the podcast earlier. So the podcast is Malice. Malice. Malice podcast. Yes. And I can't wait to work with Ariel and see what kind of other kind of fucked up shit we can get into. Yeah, that sounds so interesting. God. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Mercedes. Hey, you're welcome. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. We hope that you were just intrigued in this week's murder as we were. We appreciate you sharing our passion with us. And thank you for your support. If you'd like to support us even further, you can subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star rating. Please do this. Um, we It pushes up us up the charts somehow some way so we need there we need you to do that while there leave us a comment about absolutely anything your subscription and the ratings are essential to our success you can do this on your favorite platform for more information and links to our facebook instagram and twitter pages please visit our website as at it wasn't me true we are so grateful to spend our time together to share murder stories thank you so much for listening to us especially a shout out to william Thank you for not thinking that we're weird for our obsession. We would like to thank our Patreon supporters. They are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me pod. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating. Thanks again, guys. And remember, it wasn't wasn't me. me. And wash your hands.